every company they need a four-year-old kid because they ask why are you doing things in a certain way mm. and when they get that answer they mm. ask once again mm. so why do you do it in this way and what does that mean and so forth so bring more, more four-year-old kids into the boardroom this is exploring leaders episode 24 with professor and experienced chair and board member Martin Schöp. Martin will share his story on how modularization can make businesses twice as effective, inspiring you to take responsible leadership in the digital age. Do you wonder how trailblazing leaders sense at scale, involve to innovate, and align the actions in this increasingly digital world? Welcome to the Exploring Leaders Podcast. The experienced team at Degosian interviews leaders from around the world for insights and inspiration on how to lead in the digital age. Our guest today is Martin Schöld. Martin is a researcher and professor at Stockholm School of Economics and divides his time between academia and industry. He has a background from his own family's business and many years of management research in major international companies. He is a frequent speaker, author and advisor, and he is the director of an innovation institute. Martin is also chairman and board member at both private and listed companies. He's passionate about leadership and how leaders with new insights can improve companies' organizations, structures and governance. This episode focuses on his journey and approaches he finds effective for the top companies and leaders. I'm delighted to be here with you, that we can take this moment and I have a chance to interview you. Martin Schöld, you are both an assistant professor, you work on three, four boards, you do a lot of advisory work, almost into operational work, and you're also a director for an institute, so you have a lot of things on your mind. With this, where you are today, what has taken you there? I have a pretty long journey, I think. I grew up in southern Sweden, in Hässleholm. My grandfather, he was running a company. He started that in the early 60s. So he was producing or assembling trailers for the heavy truck market. In 80, he passed away and my father, he was the new CEO. So I almost grew up on the shop floor and I have done uh, an awful lot of things within the family corporation. I don't think it was certain from where I come from that you should study at higher levels. My mother, she has that kind of background. So I spent five years after high school working within the company, doing different things. And then I was, okay, let's give it a chance to go to university. After three years, it was very certain that I should go for, for a master. And then I had the opportunity to meet with a professor from Stockholm School of Economics, where we are right now, Professor Kister Karlsson. And, and I was interested in doing research. So I asked him, is it possible to do a, a doctoral thesis with your supervision? And he responded positively. What are some of the defining moments during those all of those years up until now? The defining moments? Yeah. I think it was 2007 when I defended my thesis. That was a tough day. You spend five years, you work 
I would say almost every day for mm -hmm. five years and you work 10, 12, 13, 14 hours and somebody is going to judge I would say your smartness in some sense yeah. or your area of expertise at least. So being as prepared as possible that sets you in a certain position. And of course, when you're in academia, you, we produce theses, we do journal articles and so forth. There is a research question. Mm -hmm. You must identify a research question that you're really interested in because you're gonna spend an awful lot of time. And I found it after a couple of years. That was also such a moment, I would say. What was the research question you found? Yeah, it was uh, challenges when you acquire companies yeah. to achieve synergies right. at the product level. So that was my research question. What are some of the common myths that exists about your profession that you think is totally wrong? People have misunderstood it. Yeah, I think people are right in, in some sense or in some cases, but they're also wrong. Sometimes we hear things, uh, and now I take the academian hat mm -hmm. on my head. Mm -hmm. They say people make a distinction between research and reality. Okay. And uh, when they refer to reality, they mean business and research and academia, that is something else. I would like to think that I've always done relevant research. And I also like a research methodology where you work closely inside an organization. Mm. You get to understand management. You need to understand the products, the customers, everything. And I think that goes back to my roots from the family company. Mm. I have a genuine interest in companies understanding them and then I would like to apply the research context on that setting. If you look at your engagements now, can you describe a bit more, especially around how you, you balance between the academia and some of the settings that you have in your board positions, what are they? I think the different areas they are complementary or concentric which means that the route has been research because mm. there is where i have my level of expertise i would say that i'm pretty broad when it comes mm. to research i understand the strategy field the organization field the operations strategy and management field pretty well i'm not that expert within one area only. So based on a broader research base, I think I can apply that knowledge into company situations. I can use it when I lecture, if I give ad advice to companies or when I run meetings. The research is the foundation. When you are in the board setting, where do you find that it's most hard to apply that and most easy to apply that? I think it's hard to address skills of your own, but yeah. I think one area I am pretty skilled at, that is to see connection. Also pretty good at synthesizing different mm. areas. Mm. So I see patterns pretty early and I didn't really understand that 10 years mm. ago. Because I saw the patterns, I was quite clear, I was convinced by myself that this is the answer, this is how A and B and C are connected. But sometimes I was a little bit ahead of the rest in the room. 
And I'm not bragging, that's just the way I'm mm. trained. I have given myself a little bit more time. Mm. You don't need to run into those synthesizing conclusions too early. And also, you need to find a way to get the others on board. Definitely. And how do you do that in a board? I use different techniques, I think. One technique is to make sure that everyone is talking around the table. Mm. So some people, they are silent by nature. So I pinpoint them in a friendly manner and I say, what is your opinion on this? Mm. And is it right to or so? Right. so? I make sure that everyone has at least said something in a three-hour meeting, for instance. But there is this divergence and convergence mm. within, I would say, all discussion. Mm. So you need to listen in the different perspectives, but you also need to steer the discussion into, I would say, maybe common sense is the wrong word, because sometimes common sense could be the wrong direction. Yeah. You need to dare to do that. The second te technique, that is to repeat. Mm. things. So I, I think I'm testing my own uh, conclusions mm. or my own uh, analysis bit by repeating, mm. by asking questions, by mirroring things that I have heard mm. and where I see different connections. Mm. So you build understanding in the room by using these two techniques. And I think that is probably where you get conflicts otherwise, when people don't have time to get to the same conclusion. Yeah, but I'm not afraid of different conclusions mm. either. I think it can be quite interesting mm. to have strong, good opinions going in different directions because then you really need to test a mm. line of reasoning. Mm. And maybe there is two answers. So I wanted to go in a bit more onto the business side. And I know that you've also researched a lot and your field is also within operations and innovation. How do you see that companies' development and innovation has changed over the last years? And what do you think they're missing? It's a good questions. I think innovation is much higher on the agenda, but innovation can also mean so many different things. Mm. I think many companies, they spend most of the time on how to innovate the product or a service. Mm. So that's the level of anal analysis. But <clears throat> being innovative in business models, for instance, how you work and interact with customers, being innovative in the value chain, mm. for instance, uh, there, there are so many areas uh, companies mm. can be innovative uh, yeah. nowadays. Yeah. The, the startup companies, uh, they don't have a history. They can jump into mm. a new business model from the beginning. And I think that is a bit stressful to big companies. And one great example, for instance, that is Scania. That's an old company, more than 100 years of history. They started a new company and they said, you have one goal. You should beat the old mother company, Scania. And I think that is extremely smart because then they own the worst potential competitor. So that is also being smart and innovative at the same time. You can check out more hints and tips in the blog post covering this podcast episode of Exploring Leaders at the Degotian blog, which you can find at degotian.com. And from the board level and from the leadership level, what is it that you think happens when they stagnate and they don't move into the future? I think they are afraid. 
you are used to do things in a certain way. Mm. You know that really well. If maybe if they should give an advice to somebody else, they would give another kind of advice mm. than what they do for as their own actions. Mm. So sometimes I think owners and some companies they are a little bit afraid of testing new things because they don't have a track record of doing it. Mm. So they stay on as the old faucet example. It's easier. Yeah, it's easier. It's op- they think it's easier. Yeah, it is. But in fact, it's harder. It is, definitely. <laughs> so doing the same familiar things yeah. over and over again, yeah. I think that, that is a key challenge. And sometimes I say every company, they need a four-year-old kid yeah. because they ask, why are you doing things in a certain way? Mm. And when they get that answer, they mm. ask once again, mm. so why do you do it in this way? Yeah. And what does that mean and so forth? So bring more, more four-year-old kids into the boardroom. So I think that's uh, an example. <laughs> yeah, or the curiosity of a four-year-old. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And not yeah. being afraid not as being a four-year-old. Afraid, which, which brings us into one thing, and that is you have also actually written a book. And can you tell us a bit about the book? Mm. your findings that you documented in the book. So we can put the book into context. It goes back to my thesis. It was about economy of scale, economy of scope, because that's two different kinds of synergies. Mm. And economy of scale, that is pretty well known. It's about volume. When you Mm. produce something Mm. in a higher volume, you get cost reduction. So that is cost-based synergies. Mm. Everyone understand, understand economy of scale because it's intuitive and I think we, we grew up with that level of understanding. Then I think I was four years into my doctoral thesis, then I, uh, I read about economy of scope and that is less known. Mm. So that is about how can you achieve a synergy from doing various things, like in distribution, for instance. If you bring goods from different producers into a truck, that is some kind of, of a, a variation synergy. If you cook food, for instance, you do pancakes, but you can also make crepes mm. and you can use the meat for doing lasagne, for mm. instance. So you get different outputs. Mm. That's a different mindset. Mm. So most often I think companies, they forget the economy of scope because yeah. they understand economy of scale. So they miss a great opportunity mm. by not focusing scope. Mm. And this was unfinished for me when I defended my thesis because I slipped into a related research question. And I was thinking about that for 10 years. I was reading everything, but I didn't find uh, the answer. So my hypothesis, <coughs> that was that companies can gain economy of scale from working directly with scope. That that was the idea I had, but I couldn't explain if it was correct or how you should do it. Then I had the opportunity to work with Scania, the the bus and truck manufacturer in Södertälje. And I met with the, the CEO, a lot of experts and so forth. And I was asking all my questions. And at one of these meetings, I would say a missing piece was found. Then I understood, okay, my hypothesis is right. Mm. I can't explain even for the people from Scania, mm. I can't explain for them how they managed to produce such a variety of different trucks, mm. but also gain the economies of scale. Then I said to that CEO, Martin Lundstedt, uh, and then Henrik, who was his uh, successor, I said, okay, I'm going to write a book. 
Uh, and I put an awful lot of pressure on myself because I decided the deadline first. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I will never do that again. But my mission was to write the book in, in a very easy language mm. so that everyone can understand the ideas behind. Mm. Because I was used to write academic uh. papers. And they are written in a way that practitioners and almost no one really have the time to, to read yeah. those papers, to yeah. be frank. So that was a great challenge for me to be able to write about complicated things in, in an easy way. So that became the book. So in Swedish, I gave it the name Dubbelt Effective. So that means being efficient, both in terms of variation mm. and volume. Mm. And then I translated it into English, and right. then I gave it the name Modularization. Oh, right. And that is what Scania has been doing since mm. 1947, mm. step by step. But they can't uh, really explain how they do it, at least that is what Henrik was writing on the backside of the book. So I gave them some kind of, of an understanding why they do things in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And I believe that many companies, they are doing this in a, to a certain level, mm -hmm. but this is close to being a religion. You have mm -hmm. to believe in it. Okay. And you have to constantly develop your yeah. modularization abilities right. because you're never really done. Right. It's like lean production. Yeah. Toyota, they are not, they are not lean. They are, they, are, they are striving to become even leaner yeah. every day. Yeah. And the same is with modularization. And I also believe uh, that industrial companies, they have been doing this to certain levels for many years because they are forced to do it because competition is so hard. Right. Service companies, insurance companies, banks, they don't have the same kind of pressure. Mm. And they have not really modularized mm. their offerings. Mm. So they can easily add some more competitive edge by doing this. So there is where I see yeah. the best possibilities for the future. Interesting. I also see a trend that more of the services companies are trying to become more product oriented. Mm. Whilst you're saying that it's actually not product oriented, it's modularized. Yeah. And that is being close to the customers because you need to understand the customer needs in detail. When you, I would say, not only almost know more than the customer about the customer customer's own needs, yeah. you need to know that yeah. because you need to assist the customer between different choices. So you need to understand the customer needs mm. in detail. And by understanding that, you also handle a lot of trade-offs. Mm. So what kind of modules do we really need? Because it's very easy to add uh, a, a lot of components or content, yeah. but you need to de develop all the content, all the components and so yeah. forth. But you should think uh, as Lego. Mm. You should have a few Lego bricks. They mm. should be able to be combined with each other mm. in a smart way. Mm. So that is modularization. Mm. The interesting thing with that is that it would actually help another area which is to make it competence-based. And one of the things I can see on several of the, of the tech companies is that they are better than many companies in actually going to one level, figuring out that they're there and then look at what else can we use mm. it for, which most of us traditional companies should be better at, but we don't have 
the modular base to mm. actually become better because it's and I especially look at a lot of financial services totally spaghetti integrated it's very hard for them mm. they haven't started to do the modular journey same goes for a lot of outsourcing company mm. IT companies they have the same challenge they would also benefit a lot of being much more modularized and putting yeah. themselves together and I believe that's a sustainable strategy mm. for real because then you don't spend more resources than needed. So it's an environmental super smart strategy. It's a very smart strategy when it comes to real customer needs mm. and how you use your own equipment, your own personnel mm. and so forth. Mm. So it's a win-win operational strategy. To get even more value out of the podcast series Exploring Leaders, you can find everything from research reports to advice and courses at the Degotian website, which you can find at Degotian.com. Interesting. So I need to go one step down on this. How do you think that leaders can actually look at their business and start to think about getting more modularized? I have noticed a difference. If we look back 10 years in time, many CEOs, many executives, they had an opinion like modularization, product mm. uh, architectures, product platforms. That is something they deal with in, within R&D. Right. But w when I teach about this, when I give advice, I always take it from a strategic mm. business level. I relate that to, to money. I, I always use the DuPont model. So if you select one or two strategies, yeah. you can expect to earn money from capital turnover or high profit margin. Yeah. Then you need to decide at an operational level, is it volume or variety mm. you should produce? So when they see those three connections, strategy, economics mm. and, and operations, mm. then they understand this can't be an issue for a group of people within R&D. This is a top executive management strategy. So they need to say, okay, this is the way to go for the future. Mm. And then they can say, okay, we need a group mm. who will drive this, uh, this project or mm. whatever it is. Mm. But it needs to be donated from the highest yeah. level in the company or even from the boardroom. So it is a very strategic decision for the future. Yeah. And it's a way to make your company more sustainable. Absolutely. Basically. This might be some of the same, but if you think about leaders and boards and how they prioritize on what they act on mm. in general, and how should, how do you see that they are prioritizing for things going strategically? or tactically, and how should they do that? I think listed companies, they live within all the financial regulations. Mm. They are strategic, absolutely. Mm. But I would say if we with tactic mean shorter time periods. Yeah. So I would say it's financially tactical perspectives yeah. that dominate listed companies. Yeah. Maybe 70% of mm. all time spent within boardrooms mm. are on these specific yeah. questions yeah. that is at least mm. some experiences mm. that i have mm. then you have all the uh, the fires that are uh, so big that the board need to know about them that is also uh, very short term perspectives yeah. and i think that is similar with life you do what you do when do you have uh, enough time to think 
three years yeah. ahead or five years yeah. ahead. I think that's a syndrome, irrespective of if it's a boardroom or if it's top management mm. uh, situation or even on my private situation. Mm. Mm. We spend too little time because we're busy dealing with all the must. Yeah, and it's interesting to think about how do you scope out that focus and time? Mm. And how do you do that? And how do you try to do that in your boards? We sometimes we, we go somewhere else. If I can affect the situation, mm. I say, okay, can we run a board meeting somewhere else at the customer? Or if we do it in a different area of Sweden mm. or international, mm. because it's always good to, mm. to meet with those people. And when you do, that means everyone needs to travel. Why don't we take the opportunity to run a two-day meeting instead? Yeah. The board meeting is great, but it's also in, important to have enough time around the board meeting. For instance, to cook food. We have done that in one board. We went to the chairman of the board, invited the entire board, and he was cooking food. And we had five, six hours to just chit chat. And by doing this, we learned to know each other. Mm. We understood which kinds of perspectives that each board member mm. typically is bringing mm. into the company. Yeah. So somebody is taking a legal perspective, another one a financial perspective, and a third one an right. operational perspective. Yeah. I would say the meetings outside of the formal board meetings yeah. are extremely important because yeah. there is where we build trust and we get to know each other. Mm. Because if if I don't know you, for instance, yeah. that will affect what I am willing to say in a board. Leaving the boardroom and the board yeah. meeting a little bit for the better. And find ways to have discussions yeah. in and around it. I wanted to ask a very specific question, and that is, how do you see that companies can use sustainability to innovate? I think that is the key question for the future. As previous CEO Henrik Henriksson, he mm. was writing a book and mm. I would recommend everyone to read that one. The name is Sustainability Leadership. Yeah. Sustainability from that point of view, how that book is written, is not something you add on. It's not something you bring in from the side. It's the foundation of the business. Mm. So you need to read the book to understand that level of thought. But I think that is exactly spot on. And the key message in the book is if you do that, I would say all in, mm. you could be even more profitable, but for the better. Yeah. So you win twice. De definitely. Yeah. And also for more stakeholders. Seeing profitability mm. as the new foundation mm. for the future. Mm. I think that's the trick. Now I wanted to move over to leaders and leadership and boards and their development. So what in practical terms do leaders and boards need to do differently compared to before? In, in any kind of in, To develop themselves so that they can develop the companies. Run meetings differently. The formal agenda, that's good to have because you need to do certain things, but secure that you have time when the agenda is, has come to an end. So the small talk, the outside the formal settings talks, that is okay. super necessary. Bring other kinds of people into the room. So try to have a stance and an angle where you would like to be challenged for the good, not for your defensive mm. 
kind of statement. You should, you need to like to be challenged for yeah. the good. Try to find people who can challenge you, mm -hmm. your company, the board or mm -hmm. whoever it is. And try to do things differently. Sometimes when I drive a certain route quite often, I try to drive it in different ways. Yeah. Just to see if I can... Yeah learn anything from yeah. doing it. At least give new impressions. You need to like to be a bit more challenged, I think. So historically, it's been very much that um, as a leader and even a, as a CEO, you keep doing most of your time in operation, but you do some leadership development. And then you get to the board and then suddenly it's up to you to develop. What do you think needs to change to actually also get board members into a perspective of lifelong learning? I think every person is interesting mm. if you really would like to understand a person mm. genuinely. Mm. But you need to be willing to invest that time mm. and interest. Mm. So being curious, mm. never stop developing yourself mm. by trying to do new things, put yourself into challenging situations, mm. listen to other kind of music that you don't obviously since 30-40 years back in time. I have some friends, they are chefs and I love to cook food yeah. to them. They are the real experts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then it's for real. I yeah. need to do it yeah. as good as I can. So I try to think in these ways, yeah. but I wouldn't say I'm extremely good at it. But I think you said actually before one thing that I think is key, and that is that you keep looking for patterns, you're connecting mm. the dots. But if you don't get new inputs, oh, exactly. then it's going to be hard mm. to actually help the company to yeah. develop and finding new routes and finding new ideas. Uh, and I have had long periods in my life where I have worked far too much. Mm then you don't have any time over yeah. to, to have those kinds of new impressions. Yeah. And people talk about life balance and so forth. Yeah. I think life balance is to do what you like to do. If you like to work extremely mm. much, please do that. That's yeah. balance for you. Yeah. If somebody else likes to work just yeah. seven hours yeah. a day or eight, that's yeah. life balance yeah. to him or her. But make sure that you have enough room to have impressions from different yeah. angles or new angles yeah. and being curious. So is there a company or a leader that you think we should keep our eyes on? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, IKEA is one of the most interesting companies. Mm. They were so many decades ahead of sustainability mm. and everything involved the customer mm. and so forth because it started from scarce relations yeah. or from a scarce situation. The same is with Toyota, for instance. Japan was a poor country after the Second World War. Toyota, was, they didn't have resources in excess, for instance. Scania, I mentioned that mm. previously. They had quality problems after the Second World War because suppliers from Europe, they were hit mm. by the war. Mm. So they needed to do things in a smart, new, productive or effective way. IKEA, definitely because they are so diverse in a sense. I love their business model. They focus the many people. They care for the ones who don't have the highest wages, for yeah. instance. Yeah. I think that is wonderful. So the many people and, uh, and 
poor is the wrong word, but yeah. th- that is they wonderful. They have a bigger mission. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And they have been able to constantly redefine the business yeah. model decade by decade. Or maybe not the business model, more the mission statement. And the entire business, actually. Yeah. Is there any podcast or sources that you think we should also benefit from or keep our eyes on? And what is the name of your podcast? I have one, and thank you for men- mentioning it. It's in Swedish, and the name is Lop. And you can find it at Spotify or mm. Podcaster. Right. So I'm just about to launch the second season. I think you should ask teenagers Mm. where do they find their inspiration i have three boys myself i think they spend too much time on tiktok so i i have the kind of idea that they spend too much time Mm. it's only idiotic videos and so but i'm wrong i should spend time on tiktok understand why yeah why and all the big musicians in the world Mm. everyone who is becoming famous now Mm. They have been famous via TikTok. So that is a platform. I think ask the younger generation Mm. what podcasts are they listening to? Why is it inspiring for them? And I think really understanding TikTok and those new platforms, that is super key. Would you, anybody that wants to follow you or reach you, do that? They can find me on LinkedIn, for instance. Mm -hmm. My name, Martin Schöld. On Instagram, Facebook. And do you have a website as well? Yeah, I have one. It's called dot com, I think, or SC. Yeah. That they can find you through as well. Yeah. Okay, so I have a final question. Mm-hmm. If you were a furniture, what would you be? I would be a sofa. Okay, and yeah. tell me why. <laughs> <laughs> I spend too little time in the sofa, but oh. when I do it, I really like to just sit in a good sofa and have something good to drink next to you because it gives you room for a a good conversation and I would say mindfulness or Mm. peacefulness Mm. and I think many sofas they're looking really good as well so yeah a sofa is uh, is my favorite thank you so much and thank you so much for spending time and sharing your insights thank you so much for having me a pleasure listening to Exploring Leaders, a podcast produced by Degotion with the ambition to inspire insightful leadership in the digital age. If you found this episode interesting, join the momentum to amplify the voices of trailblazing leaders by sharing it with others for inspiration. For any questions or recommendations on other inspiring leaders you like to listen to, contact us via our website, degotion.com, or via social media as LinkedIn or Twitter.